it, the color really does have an impact on your brain. Yeah. Yeah. It's like with these billions of dollars, the technology companies actually hire psychologists to intentionally do this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. It's finally time to cover a no-brainer story here on Acquired, Google's 2014 acquisition of Nest. David, are you pumped? I am so pumped. (laughs) We, uh... Um, there's no shortage of research for this one. There's no shortage of requests for this one. And actually, that's pretty timely with uh, uh, the announcement coming out last week that Google is rolling Nest back into, or I guess for the first time, into its its main hardware business instead of running as an independent subsidiary. Yeah. I mean, the question is, like, which Nest acquisition or divestiture is this officially going to be about? Because there was the original acquisition, the rolling out into a standalone unit of alphabet and now the reacquisition back into google yeah well and not to mention a half a billion dollar pickup of Dropcam along the way along the way um, we just might cover that it's true it's true i so to make sure we're on the same page for the full episode uh this is the original acquisition of of nest um where they google actually wired cash to the bank accounts of people who own shares in nest <laughs> oh, that's so prosaic, Ben. <laughs> um, a couple of announcements uh, for listeners before we dive in. Uh, David and I have been playing around with a lot of new podcast apps recently, and one of them that's pretty cool is Breaker. So if you're using the Breaker app and listening to us right now, um, or if you want to uh, try it out, please comment on this episode. We're, we're experimenting with um, how the rise of social podcast apps sort of affects discoverability and would love uh, love your um, your comment on, on this episode to, to see how it compares to the effect of people leaving reviews on iTunes accounts. So maybe if we uh, mobilize the acquired base, uh, we, can, uh, we can help discoverability of the show. Um, if you are new to the show, uh, you can check out our Slack at acquired.fm, uh, over 1,100 strong. All right, well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there. That's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, 
run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny. I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes. Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at StatSig than at Visa? On the customer side, StatSig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse-native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. So David, I think we've got one piece of follow-up before diving in. Yeah. Um, so we want to do a follow-up on the Apple Beats episode, um, which actually, kind of hard to believe, was the last episode, just you and me, that we did together. That's uh, right. We've had so many guests and specials since then, uh, which have been great. Um, but in the interim, uh, listener uh, Devin wrote into us about something that we didn't talk about in the Apple Beats story. And that's that Dr. Dre has a history of assault uh, back in his earlier days with NWA. Um, and in particular, assault and violence towards women, which is obviously a pretty important thing. And we should have mentioned it as part of the episode. So now in this case, it's somewhat of a complicated situation. Uh, and we aren't really equipped on acquired to prosecute the specifics of this or any other case, uh, really. But the documentary that we mentioned, The Defiant Ones, addresses it pretty well um, and pretty fully. So definitely you should go watch the movie for lots of reasons, um, but this is an important one. But but that said, we do think it's important for us to acknowledge it, and we want to make sure we put it out there on, on this show. Um, so thank you, Devin, for calling it out. Yeah, and, but I think, David, to just underscore your point, this just hit us like a ton of bricks when we got this email because we, you know, we didn't mention it once on the episode, and it, it shouldn't go overlooked. And, um, you know, we do a lot of founder glorifying on the show, and I think it's really important to, you know, look at the whole person. Yeah, it's it's a good reminder that just like you said, Ben, it's easy to treat, you know, founders and Silicon Valley folks as heroes. Um, we often do on this show, but, uh, you know, they're people like any other people and some have good sides, some have bad sides. Um, and it's just important to remember that. So we'll try and keep that in mind with everyone going forward. Uh, thanks again, Devin, for pointing it out. Uh, and with that, let's move on to Google and Nest. Um, okay. So you definitely can't talk about Nest without talking about the well-known uh, and at times controversial, though not as controversial as Dr. Dre, uh, co-founder, um, you know, whose name is basically synonymous with the company. Of course, uh, I'm talking about Matt Rogers. <laughs> Classic. Matt Rogers is always all over the news. Always all over the news. No, <laughs> Matt Rogers is the, um, is the co-founder and, uh, uh, I believe, chief product officer of, uh, of Nest. And we're going to talk a lot about Matt. Um, but no, the person I'm referring to is the quote-unquote father of the iPod, Tony Fidel. 
uh, which which I presume most folks listening to the show uh, have heard something about in the past. Uh, but who is Tony? Um, well, so Tony grew up in the 70s and early 80s, uh, primarily in Detroit, although his father was a salesperson for Levi Strauss, the jeans company uh, based here in San Francisco. Um, so they moved around quite a lot. Um, but Tony turns out was really influenced by his maternal grandfather. So his mom's dad, um, who also lived in the Detroit area. And, uh, he was like, uh, this sounds like awesome kind of depression era, like, you know, self-reliant, like tinkerer sort of, uh, he was not an engineer. He was a school teacher and a school superintendent, but sort of proto, um, engineer. And he really encouraged Tony when he was growing up to like, fix stuff around the house and do everything yourself and take things apart and understand how they worked. Um, and, uh, and so this had like a big impact on Tony. Um, and then when he was, uh, around the age of 12, he discovered computers, uh, and took that same approach to computers. So he got an Apple II, he took it apart, he put it back together, um, was totally obsessed with it. David, can I just pause for a minute? Like, I have some of the stuff that you find, like, it's like you grew up with Tony somehow. It's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like he was down the street from me. And it's just, <laughs> it's just impressive. <laughs> well, there's, uh, we do a lot of research on this show. Um, and uh, a lot of this comes from um, Tony uh, was part of, um, I forget exactly what this organization is called. It's like the achievement organization or achievers or something like that. And he received a award um, from them and did a big oral history on kind of his, uh. Uh, his background. Um, so we'll, we'll see if we can uh, link to that in the show notes. Uh, but there's a lot of good stuff out there about all this history. Um, and uh, so he's hooked on, he buys the Apple II. He's hooked on computers. Uh, he ends up going to college at the University of Michigan. Uh, this is in the uh, in the late 80s, uh, mid to late 80s. And he studies computer engineering, which is a combination of computer science and electrical engineering. Um, so he's getting both hardware and software um, in school. And then he also gets an education in entrepreneurship uh, at school. He starts um, actually not not one but three different companies uh, while he's at the University of Michigan. Um, the largest, uh, most successful of which was an education software company that he started with one of his professors um, that was called uh, I think Constructive Instruments. Um, so he's he's kind of he's got the he's got the hardware he's got the software he's got the entrepreneurship uh, he's a total Mac nerd and, and nut um, and apparently he he also he's a subscriber to MacWorld and he re reads the magazine religiously and he hears about this right as he's a senior getting ready to graduate he hears about this stealth startup in Silicon Valley um, that was a spin out from Apple started by a bunch of legends from the initial Mac team uh, called General Magic and Tony decides I need to go get a job at General Magic and move out to Silicon Valley so David before the show we were texting and you like alerted me to the existence of General Magic and I have like a, a shame bag over my head of of like calling myself an Apple nerd and and having like you know, having cared about the company for a long time, like I, I did not know about this company and it's insane. Like tell us about some of the history of, of general magic. Totally insane. So this company was started, uh, in the early nineties in the Valley. Um, and it was like all the legends from the initial Mac, the original Mac team at Apple. Um, so it was Bill Atkinson, uh, Andy Hertzfeld, uh, Mark Porat and Joanna Hoffman. Um, 
many, if not all of those, I think are kind of central characters in the Steve Jobs movie, um, which is another good movie you should all go see if you haven't. Um, and uh, and they were like all super well known in the Mac community, um, and they left Apple to start this company, and it was it was totally secret what they were doing. So Tony. And, and nobody else had any idea what they were actually doing. It was just that it was this dream team out in the valley. Um, so he, uh, he graduates, he goes out there, and he basically like talks himself into a job uh, with General Magic. I think he was like the 30th employee or something like that. Um, and it turns out that what they're doing is uh, they're basically, they have a vision to essentially build the iPhone. Uh, but it's like the early nineties. So it's like way too early for the iPhone. Um, and the company actually turns out it would, you know, consume a whole bunch of capital. It would go public. It would fail. It would pivot a bunch of times. One of the things that comes out of it ends up being OnStar. The like, you know, if you've ever driven a Chevy or a GM vehicle, the like connected roadside assistant thing. (laughs) Um, but the vision was to build a connected, an internet connected, uh, PDA personal digital assistant that people could keep with them, you know, all throughout their day and their lives, uh, would be connected to the internet. could do email, uh, could do phone calls. Um, and amazingly, like some of the other people who worked at, at general magic along the way, Andy Rubin, who started danger and Android Pierre Omidyar, the Omidyar, I never know. Uh, a Amidiar, I think. Yeah. Amidiar, uh, founder of yeah. eBay. Kevin founder Lynch, eBay. who was the CTO of Adobe and now runs Apple Watch at Apple. Um, yep. Like there's this just ridiculous mafia of people that worked at at uh, General Magic and, and each sort of, even though the company failed, like took little pieces of its vision and made them reality at different pieces of the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, awesome we 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 didn't know when we started digging into the history for this that this was going to be as much an apple episode as a as a google episode but um with tony fidel you just can't uh, you can't stay you away can't, you can't stay away from it um so tony works there for three years in his first job um and and it kind of becomes clear that like the market is not ready the technologies are not ready for you know essentially the iphone yep um, so he leaves, uh, but he's not done. He goes to Philips, the big, uh, the big Dutch electronics, uh, manufacturer. Uh, he becomes the youngest senior management member there. Um, and he essentially tries to do what general magic was trying to do, build a connected PDA, um, inside Philips. Uh, and he spends four years there trying to make it happen. Uh, also fails. <laughs> um, and he, he kind of develops a reputation as, uh, it's unclear, like how much of this was, is, is just who Tony is and how much is, uh, he was intentionally trying to cultivate this persona, but he's like the brash, like young, like Silicon Valley hotshot in this big <laughs> stodgy company. He, um, he gets a reputation for like yelling and screaming during meetings and all sorts of stuff. Um, uh, at one point, I guess fast company does a, uh, does a profile on him. Uh, and, and they ask him, you know, what, what would you be doing if you weren't in tech? And he says, I'd probably be in jail, <laughs> 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 which is probably not true, but you know, there we are. <laughs> that was the reputation he was he was cultivating. Um, so it's not working. This whole connected PDA thing isn't working within Philips either. A uh, couple of years later, 1999, uh, Napster's around. The internet's really taking off. Uh, music and MP3s are a thing. And Tony's like, MP3s. Like, this is the future. I want to get involved in this. I need to go uh, get in this industry. And so he takes... 
Isn't there some crazy story about like Toshiba made these tiny hard drives, but they didn't exactly know what to do with them. And somehow Tony's like, oh, I know what to do with them. (laughs) Well, that was not Tony, but that was John Rubenstein. Uh, Uh, We'll get to that in a sec. But so Tony's like, I want to get into music. You know, he could go to Apple. He could do all these things. He's like, I'm going to go to Real Networks, <laughs> which is the company in Seattle. Yeah, baby. Of that, right yeah, in our backyard. Real Networks, right in our backyard. Which, and, speaking uh, of speaking of mafias, the the like mafia of people that came out of Real is, is pretty insane, too. Like Particularly in the Seattle tech ecosystem, you look around at um, particularly at all the major um, like successful consumer companies and the, the Real Networks mafia is, is, is probably sort of the most dominant source of talent in the region over the last 20 years. Yeah, that and... Um, the Aquanov uh, Mafia, of course, yep. too. Yep. Um, but anyway, so Tony takes a job at Real. He lasts all of six weeks. <laughs> Remember, he's like the controversial executive here. Uh, he stays at Real for six weeks. <laughs> Something happens. <laughs> and uh, he decides, you know what? I'm still going to pursue this MP3 thing, but I'm going to do my own startup and do it on my own. So he leaves. Uh, he starts a company called Fuse Systems. Um, and his approach to mp3s is he wants to build hardware to play mp3s but he's not yet thinking about you know portable ipod style hardware he wants to make like audiophile quality rack mounted like stereo hardware like something you would keep next to your you know uh receiver in your home hi-fi system next to your home pod yeah, next to your HomePod. Exactly. He's just he's he's habitually like twenty years ahead of the ahead of the <laughs> world. <laughs> um, so he does that. Uh, he starts the company, like I said, in nineteen ninety nine. Um, things go along. He raises some money, uh, but then the dot com crash happens, um, and uh, and it's two thousand two thousand one. The company, even with Tony's you know reputation, uh, is not able to raise money. He's running out of cash. He's trying to figure out what to do. Um, and so one weekend, apparently, uh, he's, uh, he's skiing. He also loves skiing. This is going to become a, a recurring theme here. He's skiing in Tahoe and he gets a call on his cell phone, uh, and he picks it up and it is John Rubenstein from Apple, who is the SVP of hardware at, at Apple. And, uh, and John had been, was a veteran of next. Uh, so he had joined next when Steve jobs was at next, um, then came with Steve back into Apple, um, and was running hardware at the time. And so John and Steve have been thinking about the music space for a long time. They just, this is now the like spring of 2001. They just launched the iTunes software. The store wasn't out yet. Um, And they're looking for um, potential to build a hardware player to go along with it. Um, And, and they couldn't quite find the technology to do it. And then apparently the story (laughs) is that John and Steve are separately on business trips to Japan and John's meeting with Toshiba and they show him this one in 1.8 inch hard drive that they have. And they're like, we don't really know what to do with it. Like you were saying. <laughs> and John's like, I know what to do with this. <laughs> so apparently Steve was also in Japan at the time. John calls him up and he's like, we got to get together. They get together for dinner in a hotel and he's like, I've got it. We can do it. A thousand songs in your pocket. Toshiba has the hard drives. We can make it happen. And so Steve's like, all right, go ahead. And uh, John finds out about what Tony had been working on, calls him up. Mm. And he's like, Tony, you're the guy. You got to come in here. We need your help. Uh, can you come do a consulting project for us? And Tony's like, okay, you know, I need some money because I'm running out of cash at my startup. He comes in, he does starts the consulting project and he quickly figures out that like this is like the most important thing at Apple going on here. <laughs> um, so he spends six weeks. He puts together a whole plan for 
what components Apple needs to build this hardware, all the software coming together. Um, and, uh, and he actually builds a styrofoam model of, uh, of what the iPod could look like. <laughs> That's amazing. That's super similar to the, um, the story of the original Palm. Um, the founder of Palm ended up c- uh, carving it out of a block of wood and then for like weeks bringing around this block of wood to meetings and pulling it out of his pocket to like pretend to take notes on the block of wood to see like, does the form <laughs> factor work for me? Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know, product design. <laughs> it starts right. with tinkering. That's right. Um, so, uh, so the end of the project, he, they, he presents to the whole senior leadership team at Apple and they're like, okay, great. We want you, we want to hire you to come do this. <laughs> and Tony's like, well, but I've got this startup and I've got all these employees <laughs> and, uh, which I suppose- let's be clear. Like how, how is he doing a consulting gig while running a startup? Like for anybody running a startup, like imagine going and taking on a, you know, incredibly important product, even for like a month and a half at a company like Apple. How does that work? Yeah. This is where the research gets a little uh, (laughs) unclear. (laughs) This is the problem with, uh, you know, when you're listening to Tony tell the story only from his side, (laughs) I couldn't find anything out there of how the employees of Fuse felt about this. It feels Uh, like there may be like a very strong COO presence or something at at Fuse. Yeah. Well, who knows? So anyway, Apple and Steve and John uh, Rubenstein are like, great, we want to hire you. We don't want to acquire Fuse. <laughs> we want to hire you. Um, and uh, and after a bunch of thinking about it, uh, Tony says, okay, fine. Uh, so he shuts down Fuse and he goes to work uh, in the spring of 2001 for Apple. Um, and basically, like, this becomes the focus of like the entire company for the next couple months because they want to get the product shipped for the holiday season. Um, and they do, it's kind of, it's pretty amazing from like, it's, it's like 10 months from when Rubenstein sees the 1.8 inch hard drives at Toshiba, uh, in Japan, uh, till they, they ship the iPod in October of 2001. That's mind blowing. Like think about the number of Kickstarters that like take three years and then don't ship a product. I mean, to be able to do that in 10 months totally mind-blowing and I, and I promise this is all leading to nest eventually <laughs> um so tony stays on at apple after they ship the first ipod he ends up working on the next 18 versions of the ipod um and in 2006 uh john rubenstein retires and tony replaces him as as svp of the ipod division so he's reporting directly to steve one of the senior managers most senior managers within apple and so just before that happened I promised that Matt Rogers would come into the story eventually. <laughs> the famous, famous, the famous, player. famous Matt Rogers. Um, he, uh, uh, the iPod team hires an intern from Carnegie Mellon, uh, who shows up in, I think this was 2005. Uh, and it's Matt and he shows up and, uh, and he gets, they sit him. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if he was the first intern or one of the only interns on the iPod team. Uh, they sit him next to the printer cube and like they basically make him do like all of the grunt work for uh, for the iPod team. Um, and Matt like loves it. There's a, he does a great um, he does a great uh, um, uh, entrepreneurial thought leaders talk uh, with uh, at Stanford um, a couple years after he started Nest and talks about this and how like he was just so happy to be working at Apple. So happy to be working on the iPod team. You know, he was like fetching printer paper. He was traveling around the world, handling logistics for like installing firmware on the iPod shuffle and all this <laughs> stuff. Um, uh, so he makes a big impression on, on Tony. And apparently at the end of the summer, uh, Tony gives him a, a cash bonus uh, for his work during the summer, which like 
the the apple and the ipod team had never done before matt was the only person to to have mm. this happen um so he graduates he comes back uh to work uh for apple and for the ipod team right as tony is getting promoted to being the head of the whole thing um and this was in 2006 and at the same time this is when the iphone is starting to get worked on uh within apple and this is so cool reaching back to other of our episodes here um and it was fun to read about this there as, as is now kind of widely known, there were two competing uh, projects yeah. to become Pe- the iPhone. Purple one and purple two. Yeah. And so I think, I think the iPod, I think Tony's was purple one. Um, and it was the, the plan was they were going to take the iPod software um, and hardware and push that towards a phone. And so Tony, Matt, everybody's working on that. And then competing within the company, Steve also had Scott Forstall, take os 10 and try and shrink that down to fit it onto something the size of a phone and uh and famously you know the the direction that tony goes is the like using the iconic click wheel for the ipod and that's the primary interface to the phone and scott goes with the touch interface um and uh and and this is all now talked about when the 10th anniversary of the iphone happened uh last year uh both tony and scott you know did a bunch of interviews and talked about this and um, apparently it was like pretty bitter rivalry within the company between these two teams i bet Um, it's interesting too thinking about like you know now now when we reflect on like apple's revolutionary interface it's it's multi-touch like that they they invented this incredible capacitive touch thing that is like the dominant way that people interact with technology now but they had already done that once before like tony and team with the ipod the 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 click wheel was completely revolutionary and completely revolutionary you know Uh, compared to like the rio players and the the walkman that came before it like it was a completely different experience and and you know companies companies rarely have like that that dominant of an innovation twice or, or and you could argue multiple more times after that too. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's pretty amazing, and and it all comes from different people within Apple. Yeah. Um, and uh, so uh, obviously Scott Forrestal's team with the multi touch wins the battle, the battle of the code name Purple uh, iPhone, the future of the iPhone. Um, and and this is this was just shocking when i saw it we're going to link to this in the show notes so if you watch the demo in january 20 january 2007 when steve jobs announces the iphone like probably the most famous steve jobs moment in history uh the when he's walking through how the phone app works and he's going through the favorites he um uh he's he's showing how you can add favorites the favorites tab and it's all visual and this is all new and then he talks about like, well, and you know, it's easy to remove somebody and he removes a contact from his favorites. The contact he removes is Tony Fidel. <laughs> no way. Cold That's blooded. <laughs> uh, it's, it's brutal. Uh, and of course nobody, nobody knew, but apparently, you know, there are a bunch of interviews now afterwards. Now this has all wow. come out that like all the engineers, at least on the iPod team, like knew that that, like they knew exactly what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so as, as, you know, foreshadowed by Steve in the demo, uh, within the next couple of months, Tony is gone from Apple. Hmm. Um, and uh and so he's 
It's it's now late 2007, 2008. He's left Apple. Uh, his wife, who he had met at Apple, uh, they they both leave, and they're like, "All right, we're we're done with this. Like this is this is too much. We're going to spend some time with our kids. They have young kids. They do two things. One, uh, as you mentioned, Tony had always loved skiing. He loves Tahoe. Uh, they decide they're going to build their dream vacation home in Tahoe, uh, and they're going to travel all around the world. Uh, make up for all this time they'd spent you know at apple working super hard for the last 10 years um so they start they start building the tahoe house um and uh and then they're traveling around the world they start spending a lot of time in paris they end up buying an apartment in paris um but when they're working through the tahoe house tony's like he, he's kind of like going back to his grandfather and like as he talks about it and like you know tinkering wanting to be involved with everything he can't help himself and he's like all these products everything that's going into the house it's all like total bs like these things suck like i can do so much better <laughs> so he's he's thinking about that he also wants the house to be super green uh and energy efficient he's finding it really hard to do that um and uh, and he ends up one day he uh, when he's back in the valley and he's from from Paris and he's working on the on the Tahoe stuff um, he uh, he gets lunch with his old intern with Matt and it turns out that Matt had also bought a house recently in the valley and uh, and the house was like from the seventies and had all this old you know seventies style equipment in there and Matt's also trying to kind of retrofit it having a super hard time and Matt's like. You know, he's having lunch with his like boss's boss's boss, who he was the intern. He's like, we should start a company together. Which, like, which is we got to do this. That is the strangest feeling after you leave a company and someone was like a mythical person from on high that you only saw speak to a thousand people, and you know you may have had one or two interactions with, but like then then to just like all the pretense is gone because you've both left the company and you have this happened to me just a couple times, and you're like, oh my gosh, like that. It, it's weird to collapse all those levels of management and then just have like a human to human relationship with someone. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was literally once in Steve's jobs favorites on his iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so Tony's like, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of enjoying this, you know, Paris thing, but right. you know, maybe, maybe like you work on it and you see, see kind of what's there. Um, so Matt throws himself into this. He's still at Apple. He starts doing a ton of market research. He gets Tony excited. They're doing it too. They're talking to installers. They're going and they're looking at homes. They end up talking to somebody in the EPA who's done a lot of thinking about how thermostats can influence you and, know, and energy consumption. Matt was still at Apple during this? And Matt was still still at Apple during huh. this. Um, and, uh, and so he's pumped. He's trying to get Tony excited. Uh, and then supposedly, as the story goes, told by Tony, one day he's back in Paris. He's he's just dropped his kids off at school, I think. Uh, they're at a French preschool. And he's walking along a bridge by the Louvre. And he looks at the Louvre and he, and he thinks about all the like great stuff and great creations in there. And he's like, you know what? I'm not done. I want to I want to get back <laughs> in. And so he calls Matt up oh from a bridge God. over what the Seine. <laughs> what a setting right there. What a setting. And he's like, I'm in. We're doing it. <laughs> um so uh so matt leaves apple at this point rents of course a garage in palo alto <laughs> and starts uh starts tinkering on on stuff um and uh, and apparently in those early days like nobody even knew that tony was involved they wanted to be super super stealth mm. um so it was just matt uh tony moves back to the valley in june uh he and his wife move back he becomes ceo 
and they decide that they're going to name the company Nest because you know the goal is I don't think they've even landed fully on on doing thermostats yet, uh, but they want to reinvent the home. And they're talking about the they're like what can we call the company? They're talking about um, the uh, the the old MTV show Cribs, and they start riffing on that, and that's how they come up with Nest. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> they should have just uh, called it Crib. Yeah, I know they should have called it Cribs. Maybe maybe it would be you know. They they would be doing better in Google, but <laughs> <laughs> whoa, David, um, let's let's you know we're not at that part yet. We're not at that part yet. Uh, so they recruit a killer team from from Apple, folks they'd worked with. Um, uh, they recruit some folks from General Magic, uh, and then they make one really key hire. Uh, they're, they're able to land Matt's, uh, thesis advisor, uh, at, uh, from CMU. It's a woman named Yoki Matsuoka, uh, who is a pretty incredible person. So in the, in the couple of years since Matt was at CMU, she'd left academia, uh, to co-found Google X with Sebastian Thrun. Um, she was a robotics, uh, expert, um, in, uh, uh, at CMU and then, and then actually at the university of Washington in Seattle. Um, and so she co-founds Google X with Sebastian Thrun. Uh, she also gets awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant for her work. Um, and uh, and she'd been at Google X about a year. And Tony and Matt are able to recruit her away. Uh, and she joins as VP of Technology in the super early days at Nest. Um, and, uh, and then Sebastian, uh, he's like, of course, interested by this. So he ends up getting involved. He becomes an advisor to the company as well. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of lot while of he's, uh, While he's still running here. Google X? While he's still running Google X, yeah. Huh. Um, so September of that year, 2010, uh, they raise a nine and a half million dollar Series A from Kleiner Perkins and Shasta, um, and then they get to work. At this point, they've decided that the thermostat is their entry point into the home. They want to build a a whole you know generation of of both products, hardware products, uh, to make the home more intelligent, but also the software layer and the operating system that's gonna that's mm-hmm. going to bring it all together. Um, so they raise, they raise their series a, and then apparently in early 2011, so they don't ship the product until they take a whole year, October, 2011, they ship the product in early 2011 though, Sergey Brin, uh, the Google co-founder sees an early demo and an early version of the thermostat. And apparently he's blown away. He thinks that like immediately this is going to be the next, you know, after, after smartphones, the home is going to be the next operating system. Uh, he wants to acquire the company right away. Um, and, uh, and the company said no. Uh, so that was the first time Google tried to buy the company. Well, perhaps my grade at the end of this episode would have been higher if it was, uh, bought at that stage. Yeah. <laughs> well, we may be, we'll have to save it for what would have happened otherwise. That's right. Um, and, and so it's worth like touching on, you know, now, this doesn't seem as revolutionary. Like, oh, of course, the smart home, you know, it's 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 in many news stories. There's many great companies. It's a lot of funding around this now. Clear ecosystem plays with Google Home and Alexa and all that. This is ridiculous at the time. Like, I remember seeing their landing page and it's like, it's Apple-esque and it's beautiful and it's got the thermostat on it. And it's, you know, announcing like at some point we'll ship this thing and you can get information and updates here. And just the the media cycle around this was just ripping it apart. Like this is the peak of Silicon Valley, you know, buying their own BS. Are you kidding me? Like this, this is not innovation. Like really thermostats, thermostats is the next frontier. And it was just kind of prescient. Yeah. Well, and I feel like 
there's a lesson here because the same thing happened with Rover, uh, which, which started right around the same time, uh, almost exactly at the same time. Yep. And there were all these TechCrunch articles like Airbnb for dogs. Like this is a sign of the apocalypse. Silicon Valley is over. Um, well, and people thought Aaron, the CEO of Rover, Aaron Easterly, people thought he was nuts for going and doing total this. Total nuts. Yeah. I mean, Aaron had a super successful career at uh, actually you know, somewhat similar to Tony, although I think Aaron's personality and Tony's personality are Very polar good. opposites probably. But uh, Aaron was the youngest GM at Microsoft ever. Uh, he came from, from Aquaniv when Microsoft acquired that. Um, and that he would go work on you know, Airbnb for dogs. It's crazy. Uh, and yet both of these companies you know, turned out to be quite important. So Fidel, um, Fidel from reinventing consumer electronics to make becoming a thermostat maker. Yeah. Well, uh, when, if somebody makes fun of your startup, you should probably take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> if people care enough to make, or at least fun of it's, your it's still likely to fail, but if people aren't making fun of it, you, you know, for sure, it's not going to be huge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the next year, October, 2011, as I mentioned, they launched the product nest learning thermostat um there's a ton of buzz ton of hype uh they raise a 55 million dollar series b which remember this is back october 2011 like we're, we're not yet in the steroid era of you know like super rounds for startups this is one of the early like a 55 million dollar series b is a lot for a company that just launched a product um but it's all on the back of this hype and and the quality of the team um, and the fact and that they're lead. making, you know, expensive hardware, that's a, yep. um, yeah, st- startups are making, um, yeah, I mean, it just feels like it, it's a super capital intensive business to do that R and D in production. Yep. Um, it definitely is. Um, and so the lead of their series B is, you guessed it, Google Ventures, <laughs> one of the first big investments uh, out of Google Ventures, which at that point was a relatively new uh, operation within Google. And they would actually, uh, they, they would end up owning at, at the time of acquisition, foreshadowing a little bit, 12% of the company before yep. even buying it. Yep. Yep. Um, so that was at the end of 2011. 2012, they launched the second generation of the thermostat, uh, which is compatible with a bunch more homes and wiring systems. Uh, it gets up to... I, I believe with that version up to like 85, 90% of home, uh, home wiring systems are, are compatible with, with the nest, the second version of the nest. Um, then January, 2013, they raised their series C, they raised $80 million at a $800 million pre-money valuation. Um, and they, it gets announced that they're shipping on the order of 50,000 thermostats per month, um, which at a which at a price of $250 per thermostat puts them well over $100 million annual revenue run rate. Mm-hmm. Now, as you pointed out, Ben, this is hardware revenue with a bunch of costs and expenses uh, associated this with this it. This isn't Facebook here. This is this is not Facebook, but still, like that's pretty pretty impressive. You know, about 15 months after launching the product uh, and what is that like, you know, less than three years after starting the company uh, or just about three years from starting the company, no less than three years, you know, at a hundred million dollar revenue run rate. And I believe not profitable. I think they went all the way through the acquisition and, and years after maybe even today, it's not totally clear, but, but not, not profitable revenue. Yeah. Not, not totally clear, but it seems unlikely, especially given how much money they were raising. Um, presumably they were doing that for a reason. Um, and uh, so then later in 2013, they launched the second product, uh, which was hotly anticipated. They'd always talked about, you know, the vision of being a fully connected home. 
And it's funny, like the same thing happens. It's a smoke detector, a smoke detector and carbon monoxide detector. And everybody's like, smoke detector? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Uh, This is what this is next, Nest's next product. Um, And we'll come back to the smoke detector uh, later. But that was October 2013. Uh, In January 2014, so a couple months later, um, it gets reported that Nest is now going to be raising a monster round uh, from DST, from Yuri Milner's uh, investment firm that invested in Facebook and many others. Uh, they're going to be raising over $200 million at a $3 billion valuation. Um, but instead, on January 13th, it gets announced that Google is finally acquiring the company for $3.2 billion in cash. Um, but Ben, as you pointed out, they already owned 12% of the company. Yeah, and at this point, still only 280 employees. I mean, to be yep. pur- purchased for that price, making hardware with supply chain and and you know full uh, um, operations, logistics, uh, uh, you know retail on their website, uh, ch- channel to retail partners, full R and D team, only 280 employees. It's it's impressive. I mean, it's it's 11 billion, 11 million bucks per employee. It is. It is. And, you know, remember too, like, um, you know, you mentioned channel, like that means, you know, Best Buy, that means Lowe's, that right. means Home Depot. Right, right. That means um, not just building the relationships with those with those uh, retailers, but, you know, getting product in shelves, keeping them stocked, you know, all this stuff. It's not, it's not easy doing this stuff. Totally. Um, uh, so it's announced, uh, and the terms of the deal are, are pretty interesting. So um, Nest is to remain wholly independent. So Google is still Google at this point. There's no alphabet yet. Um, but they announced they're very clear. This is going to be like YouTube. Gonna you know Tony's going to remain CEO. The management team, Matt and Yoko and everybody else are going to stay independent. Um, going to have their own offices. Which which is uh, very much a Tony demand. Like we're we're not getting bought by Google to be integrated and me to have a boss. Like I get my own P and L. I get my own budget. You know we're we have our own office. And remember, of course, you know Tony is a is the veteran of first general magic and then Phillips and then Apple where he's seen all these corporate politics play out. And, um, you know, he's kind of, he's had a lot of success, but he's also ultimately lost the game, uh, in every case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so supposedly there was a, a term in the, in the deal. Uh, it's not public, no way to know, but it's been reported, um, that there was a term in the actual documents that, uh, Nest was given five years runway, uh, end up completely independent of any financial goals. So essentially as much financial resources as they wanted to, with the goal of building like the OS layer hardware and software for the connected home, um, and no accountability for any sort of profitability or revenue growth, um, supposedly in the, in the deal. Um, and, and then is it later that they wanted them to hit $300 million a year of revenue there was some target set there at some point? Yes. Yes. Okay. So that was January, 2014. That was basically the high water point for Nest, <laughs> or at least for Nest and Google's relationship. <laughs> and, uh, and, and here's an interesting data point on that, too. So from uh, Google's 10Q that they um, filed with the SEC uh, a few months after this happened, they they talk about how they uh, came to value the deal. And so they say uh, the fair market value of our previous previously held equity interest was $152 million. So that's that, that 12%. 
51 million bucks was cash that they acquired. So, so from the last fundraising round or however they were generating cash at Nest, um, 430 million was attributed to intangible assets, 157 million to net liabilities assumed, and $2.35 billion attributed to goodwill that is primarily for the synergies expected to arise after the acquisition. So, you know, this is not a, a multiple of current cash flows or anything like that. That this is a we believe there are serious, serious synergies with Google, and that's why we're doing this. Yeah, and interesting. What did, did you say? Fifty-one million dollars in cash uh, uh, yep. at the company they acquired. Yeah. Okay. So, and they had raised at that point about a hundred and forty-five, hundred and fifty million dollars. So that means they'd burned roughly a hundred million dollars um, on uh, on the product. Now it's we don't know what their cash flow was like at the moment in time they were acquired, but I think it's safe to assume they were not profitable and burning a lot of cash. Right. Right. Um, even with the relatively small amount of, of employees as, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. So that was January, 2014. <laughs> now the bad news starts, uh, April, 2014, they have to halt sales of the second product of nest protect of the smoke alarm and carbon monoxide system because apparently there was a way for the alarm to accidentally be disabled um, through, through. You had one job to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so it's a, it's a pretty bad thing if your smoke alarm doesn't, doesn't go off. So they have to recall all the units that are on the shelves at all their retail partners. Um, fortunately for units that are already installed, they're able to do an over the air software update. Um, but, but not a good way to, to start under, uh, under new ownership of Google. Uh, then the next thing that happens in, <laughs> to, to start there, uh, with, with not protecting your customer's homes, um, in, June, <laughs> yeah, in June, 2014, um, Nest acquires Dropcam, uh, which was a very cool company that made, uh, inter Wi-Fi connected, um, uh, cameras that you could drop around your home, hence Dropcam. Um, and apparently Google Corp Dev, uh, Google, the parent company, had been pursuing this this deal for a while uh, and then kind of sent it over to Nest and said, hey, we want to acquire this. Like, why don't we make this part of Nest? Um, and Nest says, okay, they acquire it. And it's basically a complete disaster from a cultural uh, standpoint. Um, so Didn't the founder leave like immediately? Well, not immediately, but uh, there's even more drama than that. So, so Dropcam, the founder, Greg Duffy, uh, he had worked for Zobni, uh, which is Inbox Backwards. Um, that was one of Y Combinator's first companies uh, in one of the first batches of YC. And that was like reportive, uh, right? Like it was like a Gmail plugin CRM type thing. Yep. Yeah, it was like, a, I think it was like an Outlook yeah. uh, plugin yeah, yeah, CRM. Yeah. Um, and I actually got it confused with... Um, Plaxo, which was trying to do the same thing, which was Sean Parker's startup yeah. after Facebook, um, or no, before Facebook. Anyway, uh, so that's kind of the DNA that that Greg Duffy, the founder of Jafcam, came from, was like right out of school, joins this YC company in the first batch. He's there for two years. He starts Jafcam. Uh, a lot of the folks at Jafcam would then go on to like plenty of other like you know new startups in the valley afterwards. So it's it's kind of a young like you know scrappy team. Um, Super different from like the Apple DNA that uh, Tony and Matt are bringing to uh, are bringing to Nest. Um, so basically, nothing happens. Uh, they had this roadmap, uh, and the next major product that Nest was working on was a security product, like a home alarm uh, system. 
And Dropcam had also been working on a security product, uh, I think called Tabs. Um, but Nest put Drop... And, and that was like pretty close to launching. Nest puts Dropcam's security product on indefinite hold, moves everybody over to working on the Nest product, and it just keeps getting delayed and delayed and delayed and doesn't ship. And so like a year goes by and uh, and and Greg Duffy, the, the Dropcam CEO, he's really frustrated. He sends a memo to Larry Page saying that uh, Tony That's is always good. When someone feels always good. email the CEO directly. <laughs> email the CEO. He emails. He emails. Uh, this is all reported on and uh, and then later published. Uh, uh, he emails uh, Larry Page and basically says Tony is completely mismanaging Nest. Uh, he should be fired and I should be the CEO of Nest. <laughs> oh God, we've seen this story before. <laughs> yeah, and it's a. Uh, predictably does not play well for anybody really uh first of all greg so greg uh pretty immediately after that leaves the company uh larry larry sides with tony um and uh and as this story gets even worse so greg's leaving and tony then is is interviewed in an article by the information um and he badmouths not just greg but the whole Dropcam team um and says that they were quote not as good as we hoped uh it was a small and not very experienced team so just completely throws them under the bus um not 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 good not pretty in response greg writes a medium article which is still out there um basically taking all of his complaints that he emailed larry about uh with tony and nest uh and publishing them uh publishing them for the public uh and um and implying that uh uh, Tony took, you know, essentially all of Steve Jobs's personality traits, the yelling and the screaming without his, you know, product sense. That's right. I remember that. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Fun stuff. So once again, we're not here to opine one way or another on Acquired, but uh, certainly made for a lot of drama. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> speak for yourself, David. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now what you were referring to earlier, Ben, all while this is going on, another big thing happens at Google. Two big things, actually. First, they hire Ruth Porat to join as CFO. And Ruth had been CFO of Morgan Stanley uh, before coming to Google. Uh, and, and a big part of Ruth's coming, you know, uh, as was talked about, and, and I think it's played out in practice, is bringing a lot more structure to Google um, and, uh, and particular financial discipline. Um, so she's part of the whole sort of restructuring of Google into Alphabet. Uh, and that happens at towards the end of 2015. Now, apparently when that happens, all of those agreements between Nest and Google got redone. So the the five-year runway, the lack of financial accountability, um, if it existed in the first place, it certainly doesn't anymore once Nest gets pushed out as its own independent company under Alphabet. And, uh, and part of this too, if I recall, was that, that during the acquisition, there was super, super heavy uh, incentives for the management team and key engineers to stay at Nest, right? Like they, I think they couldn't, they couldn't sell their, um, no wait, it was a cash deal. So, so maybe they just didn't get yeah. Google stock awards or something for an extended period yeah. of time. Um, or it could have been escrowed. Mm. Mm. But yeah, I, I do remember, uh, you know, there was, it was an abnormal, uh, um, sort of abnormally long retention period. And I suspect that is definitely the case because now some now some just weird behavior starts starts occurring. So um, at the very end of the year, 
there start to be rumors that Alphabet's looking to sell Nest, that Nest hasn't been able to ship <laughs> products. They're not realizing their vision of, you know, what Google uh, and Alphabet really care about, which is like the operating system for the connected home. Um, and, and, and Tony, uh, of course is really unhappy about this. Uh, but for, whatever reason, maybe retention reasons. He stays at, uh, he stays at Google. He starts also working on the Google glass team, uh, on, on redoing Google glass to be, you know, less, uh, like dorky, <laughs> literally looking to maintain the same W2. So he gets whatever bonus needs to happen. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> and they also, they got so serious into trying to sell nest. It had like a project code name called Amalfi project Amalfi. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I didn't see that. Yeah. Failed to find a buyer though. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, uh, and then, then the, the icing on the cake, the kind of last straw on the, on the camel's back here is in May of 2016, um, a nest employee files a complaint against Google, uh, uh, with the national labor relations board saying that, um, that alphabet and nest fired him uh because he was posting on facebook about all the leadership issues at nest so <laughs> it's just a firestorm oh, uh God. and then the next month in june 2016 tony finally leaves nest um and 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 since then you know um uh, whether all of these problems were on tony on google on greg and Dropcam, who knows probably some responsible responsibility is shared amongst all of them um but things do start to turn around at Nest. So, so they bring on a new CEO, Marwan Farwaz, to, to replace Tony. And Marwan came actually first from the cable industry, but then he was part of Motorola and part of Motorola when Google owned Motorola, flashing back to our HTC episode and Android and everything here. Um, and he was part of the division that made set-top boxes and cable modems uh, within Motorola. Uh, and so he worked with Rick Osterloh, who was head of Motorola, head of Motorola under Google, now has come back and is Google's SVP of hardware. So they have a working relationship. Um, and and once once he joins, things start to move a little farther. So so first big thing that happens, which we're definitely going to talk about in tech themes, Google itself launches Google Home in late 2016, which is their Echo, Amazon Echo and Alexa competitor. Now, interestingly, totally separate from Nest. So it was Google, Google's hardware division that worked on that, not Nest. Which when you, uh, when you start reading blog posts that are trying to like rewrite history a little bit, they talk a lot about the sort of the shared DNA and collaboration and how we couldn't have done it without working together. And um, I think over time they became much more integrated. But yeah, certainly, certainly uh, was a little odd when Google Home got announced and it had nothing to do with Nest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, Nest, so Nest finally ships a new camera, a uh, new Dropcam product, uh, Nest Cam Outdoor. And then they follow that up with Nest Cam IQ, which is uh, actually uses, starting to use some of Google's expertise here. They use machine learning to recognize faces uh, in the Dropcam. So for security features, you can tell if it's someone who's supposed to be in your house or not supposed to be in your house. Um, Late last year, they launched a lower, uh, a lower priced, um, version of the thermostat, uh, I think called the, the nest E thermostat E or something like that. Um, and then they also finally launched the security product nest secure after a bunch of bunch of delays, um, along with nest hello, which is a smart, uh, doorbell camera, um, sort of like the ring doorbell. Um, and then all of that happens so, sort of like, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> sort of like inspired by, <laughs> Yeah, all of that happens. 
we, we mentioned at the beginning of the this whole history, uh, Matt's thesis advisor at CMU, uh, Yoki Matsuoka, who was the VP of technology, when all of this um, drama uh, really started going down, she actually left Nest in 2015 uh, and she went to Apple, um, of all places. Uh, and then, and then in 2017, she left Apple, came back to Nest, rejoined Nest as CTO in 2017, right before they launched the ML, uh, version of the camera. Um, and now she's Nest CTO again. Wow, man. The, the horse trading here is pretty amazing. Everybody cycles through Apple and Google in some way. In some way, uh, and general magic. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, well, let's, let's, let me, um, take a minute here to talk about some of the, the financial numbers that evolved throughout this time and sort of how is Nest doing today and how, how did it, um, you know, how was it doing sort of from 2014 on, you know, it's, it's difficult to know exactly. There's some, um, there's some leaks that have happened. So we know those things. There's things we can infer by, uh, um, um, looking at the large percentage of Google's other bets category, which come from Nest revenue, and so let's let's dive into those a little bit. So I mentioned there was a, a, a um, mark that Nest was supposed to hit that was three hundred million dollars a year in revenue. In twenty fifteen, they did hit that. They had three hundred forty million in revenue, as reported by a, um, a leak out of the the division, um, and that includes the drop cam revenue. So a lot of people were speculating they probably weren't going to hit that alone, but having drop cam helped them sort of bolster and and hit that goal. Um, you know, things. Uh, it, it was an expensive division to run. It stayed very separately. They've got all this turmoil. So you know, in, in twenty sixteen, they were um, they were looking to explore a sale. It didn't happen. Um, so, okay, let's look at what in, in 2016, 2017, um, what actually happened in the, the other bets category. So for the first nine months of 2017, um, it, it did quite well. The, the revenues grew by 45% in other bets up to 794 million and are exceed and, and we're on pace to exceed a billion in 2017. Um, it's, it's pretty fair to assume that happened. And it was reported in 2016 that Nest had contributed about three quarters of the other bets revenue. Um, and while the the other um, segments of other bets are growing, there's certainly nothing revenue generating on the scale that that Nest is revenue generating. So you know we we and YouTube is not com- not included in other bets, right? Correct. I believe that rolls up under Google. I I think that's right now, but I haven't actually read Google's 10K in a while. I'm, I'm, I'm not or sure. It's definitely, it's definitely not other bets because it, it generates a bets, ton yeah. of revenue. It was, uh, as, at least as far as we could tell a year or so ago, it was about a, about a break-even business over at YouTube. Yep. Um, but despite the, the growth in revenues, these businesses and other bets continue to lose money. So in, uh, again, in the first three quarters of 2017, um, they reported $2.44 billion in operating losses. And, uh, and Google's operating profit rose by 20 uh, by 20% to over $24 billion. So if you look at, you know, the other bets is losing 2.44 billion, um, Google's, uh, um, operating profit as an entire, you know, or actually just the Google division is 24.1 billion. So, wow. you, you know, <laughs> losing a colossal amount of money in, over other bets, you know, that's largely attributable to Waymo and a lot of the other, um, sort of major R and D things they're doing. Um, but you know, but I, you got to imagine this too. Yeah. Yeah, because there's, you know, three, four new products coming out at, at a pretty rapid clip here from Nest um, and a, a lot of hardware R&D to get there. Yep. But it is, it is you know, we, we should look and, and, and say conservatively that Nest is doing over a half a billion in revenue now. 
um, yep. annually. And that's, and that's, and that's gotten better. And, you know, the last year I think looked really promising for them. Um, they're starting to do more integration with Google home, but they still feel largely like two separate ecosystems. And, um, in fact, nest, uh, nest integrates quite nicely with Alexa and it's kind of an accessory to the Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Lady A, Ben. Yeah. Lady, Lady A. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I woke her. Um, but yeah, you know, I think uh, um, we'll, we'll get a yeah. lot into talking about the sort of vertical horizontal strategy there. But uh, Nest products doing well, is it contributing to the the um, operating system of the home effort uh, on, on Google's part? You know, TBD. Well, I mean, let's. this is the perfect seg into... The finally the end to the history and facts here, <laughs> which is that uh, in the first week of February in 2018, there is an announcement that Nest is getting acquired again. It's just getting acquired by Google, <laughs> moving from the uh, a wholly separate division under Alphabet in the other bets category, being integrated back into Google as part of the hardware team led by Rick Ostrello. Um, and there's going to be much tighter integration now between Nest, all of its suite of products, and Google Home and everything that's an Android and everything that's going on uh, going on on the hard from a hardware standpoint within Google. Interestingly. Uh, so Matt Rogers, uh, the famous co-founder, uh, who actually seems like a really awesome dude, uh, was, uh, uh, he stayed at Nest throughout all of this, uh, the day after that announcement, he announced that he was leaving. Um, so he'll now be leaving Nest, uh, and both founders are gone and uh, and, and it'll be fully within Google. He's transitioned to full-time investor, right? He's, he's going to be in venture. I think that's the that's the plan for now. Um, now, interestingly, Tony. <laughs> so when Tony left uh, uh, left Nest uh, back in the summer of 2016, um, he he resumed where he was before starting Nest. He he moved back to Paris. Uh, so he and his family moved to Paris, uh, and he's been very vocal that uh, he's going to live in Paris. You know, indefinitely now. He has started um, his own. Uh, venture investing practice with his own money. He hasn't raised any outside money called future shape. Um, and he's all in on, on Paris and very, he's given a bunch of interviews, very, very anti Silicon Valley. Um, and you can sort of imagine that. I mean, he's had such negative experiences with the biggest companies in the Valley. Um, so it'll be super interesting to see how this all plays out. You know, he's still, he's funding companies in Europe uh, and in the U S and in the Valley. Um, some of his portfolio companies have had, run-ins and, and fights with apple with google uh so he's still very much part of the scene um <laughs> but hanging out in paris wow leave leave the gloves on but just hang out far away from the fight yeah <laughs> we want to thank our longtime friend of the show vanta the leading trust management platform Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. 
Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. All right, acquisition so, category. All right, let's... <laughs> This this one might be even harder to harder to tell than the history and facts here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so what it comes down to for me is uh, what Google said they were going to do and what they did. And so, you know, I mentioned earlier, kind of foreshadowing my my feelings about this massive amount. You know, two point three five billion of the three point two billion of the purchase price was attributable to synergies. You know, to we believe that. Um, you know, we'll combine these businesses in some way and it'll bolster our existing business. So when you start walking through Google's existing business, it is we make a ton of money on search ads because when people have intent to do anything on the internet, then they they go through Google and some and businesses pay the Google tax to to acquire those uh, people as customers. And so that's their business. It's to be horizontal and broad and touch as many people as possible and uh, get as much data about all people as possible so that they can more effectively advertise to them. It's Google's core business. It's super different than Apple's business of making hardware differentiated by software that they, they charge a premium for. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that business. Nest was making sort of the, the um, high-end hardware bets that Apple had made. I mean, Tony came from that business, understood that really well, and yep. so when I look at this, this synergies, it, 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 you would think that what they do with Nest is integrated into Google and help build that corpus of data and that ecosystem of being a Google user so that they can better have their core business and, and advertise. What they actually did was, um, you know, as a separate business unit for this long, try and, and hedge their bet and say, where does our next, you know, multi-billion or multi-hundred billion dollar innovation come from? Maybe it's an Apple-like business that exists next to a Google-like business in this subsidiary portfolio called Alphabet. And it, it actually is not a synergy with the Google business that, that you know, feeds data in there. And it's a it's the separate thing. And it is realizing Tony Fidel's vision. But they flip-flop back and forth on it so many times that I think that 2.3 billion dollars was just super value destructive they they you know if, if they were going to build if they were going to have nest and do with nest what they did they should have acquired it for you know a couple billion less um or they should have gone harder at this strategy of, of synergy so i'll say what they ended up buying was a business line and massively overpaying for it 
Uh, are you saying there's a vertical and horizontal issue here? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think to me, as I was thinking about this, like, and I believe me, we had a long time to think about it during that history and facts. Um, <laughs> I think the problem is that Google didn't really know what category they were buying when they bought it, right? And, and like, there's a co- compelling argument for each one, but make one and carry it out. Yeah, yep, yep. And and if you think about how it started, like this whole relationship started, well, it really started when, you know, um, when, uh, when Yoku, uh, when Yoki, um, uh, joined the company and Sebastian Thrun was turned on to what was going on here. Um, and then when Sergey saw the prototype, you know, and I think what, what it seems like that Google got excited about rightly so is this idea of like, this could be the next computing platform, you know, after, after smartphones. Right. Um, and, and that probably was the right thing to get excited about, but I don't think they thought through like how to, what the right way to attack that is. And, and I was thinking about this, like the parallels between, uh, the Google nest acquisition and the Facebook Oculus acquisition are like really apt, I think, because in both cases, like what was, what was hot at the time were these, you know, quote unquote, Facebook style acquisitions of we're going to buy these promising companies. We're going to let them be independent. We're going to give them a ton of runway, you know, the, the Instagram style, the WhatsApp style. Um, but I think the difference is like those worked because fundamentally those are not platform companies. Like those are networks and services built on top of computing platforms. But what Oculus and what Nest were trying to do, they were trying to build new computing platforms. And when you're trying to do that, when you're trying to be a, you know, a a full full stack hardware software OS company along the lines of of Google or Apple, you need as much resources as possible and you need like the best engineers in the world and the best product people. Um, and if you're, you know, there's a hardware, hardware element, the best folks there too. And so I think leaving them separate was kind of like not, not realizing the best vision. And, and, and now you see like Oculus is now integrated into Facebook and Nest is of course now integrated back into Google. I think if you're going to make a platform play, you got to be, have the resources of a platform company. Yep. And there's, there's one thing when I was doing research for this, there's a stratechery quote that's like just it's too freaking spot on not to, not to use because it's a brilliant framework. So if you think about, um, if you think about what Amazon did with Alexa, like they just, hang on, I got it. Let me turn her <laughs> off. If you think about what Amazon did with Alexa, they said there's going to be a home operating system. And there's going to be a, a, a center control point for that. And we believe it's going to be voice. And so we're just going to build the central controller. And then there's a whole ecosystem around it. And they just went right through the middle, right? They said, this is it. This is, this is, the, this is the heart and soul of this thing. This is the digital hub. Um, and when you look at what Google's strategy was, it's we don't know exactly how that ecosystem will play out. We know there's going to be an operating system of the home. This feels like a good vector into it. But what they ended up doing was kind of creating the the side entry the same way that Microsoft wanted to to own the living room um, and so they created a gaming console that that fit into an existing market and tried to branch out from yeah. there and so Ben Ben Thompson's quote in in Stratechery which I think is just a, a brilliant brilliant point is in any new market it pays off to simply aim for the sweet spot Amazon Echo is unabashedly trying to be the key interaction point for an automated home Nest is more of an attempt to slide through the side door and it's so 
it's it's such a simple way to think about it. Like if there's an existing market, you have to figure out how you're going to flank and, and attack from sort of where you think the market is moving rather than where it is today and, and then Trojan horse your way into it. If it's a brand new market, like smart homes, people have been trying to make a smart home for 30 years and, and like it just hasn't happened. And we're in this era now with with um, IoT in the home that that it's it's finally here. It's a reality. And this is the, the, the timing is exactly right to do it. And so if you're going to do it, then just aim right up the middle, create the center control point, you be the bundler, and then, you know, then you own the ecosystem. And I think uh, it's easy to say now by a couple of, you know, pundits who do a podcast, but like <laughs> the, the really hard to see at the time and, and Google did sort of this side entry strategy and, you know, now is doing the Google home thing for their, so they're going for the central, central control point, but years later lost a lot of market share, lost a lot of ecosystem development. Um, and in fact, Nest, their own thing is integrating with, with, uh, um, their, their biggest competitor who's out ahead in the lead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think it's also like <laughs> all of the history and facts and, you know, is instructive here that like the way I, if you're going for that straight down the middle, the new operating system in a new market, you need the res like startups are not best equipped to do that. You need the resources of a big company. And I'm thinking like back to Tony when he was launching the iPod at, at Apple, like the iPod worked because of iTunes and the iMac and it was part of the digital hub, mm -hmm. right? The iPod in and of itself, there were plenty of startup MP3 player companies of all types, but like, Apple worked because it had the whole ecosystem and the operating system. Um, and, and similarly, you know, with Amazon and, and lady a, <laughs> I won't, I won't set off your, your speech. She's, she's your, off now. <laughs> nice. Uh, with Amazon and Alexa, um, you know, it was all of the divisions within Amazon that came together to build Alexa. I mean, one of, one of my, one of my best friends from undergrad was, um, uh, was one, an early PM on Alexa and they were working on it for years before the first echo shipped. And he came from AWS and a lot of the team, a lot of the early Alexa team and echo team mm. came from that part of the company, not to mention the Kindle and the devices. And then all of Amazon's whole ecosystem. It wasn't like we're going to make a point product. It was from the beginning. Like, you know, this is a, this is a computing ecosystem. Yeah. And so like for, for Google, and, and Facebook with Oculus to then buy these companies and, and leave them, you know, independent to me is like when you're, when this is the goal is, is, is not the right way to do it. Yeah. David, I think that's a great point. I was trying to think of counterexamples and listeners, maybe you can come up with some and, and email us acquired FM at gmail.com. Um, I don't actually have, I was going to make the point of like, what, come on, startups can totally jumpstart an ecosystem. But a, a lot of times when you think about this, it is like the second or third innovation after a company already gets their foothold. It was when they, they, do, they start that ecosystem. You had a great point with, with the iPod. Um, even looking back with Microsoft, I mean, Windows was after they already had a strong foothold shipping DOS on uh, yep. IBM PC and a variety of other PCs. Like, it, it's it's often the second or third swing is when you you take a new ecosystem when you build the platform yeah and and look at look at Facebook and Google which have certainly become platform companies in their own right but their first products were were you know network opportunities and 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 network um, products really built on top of existing platforms you know on top of the web uh, in both of their cases. Yeah. And it was only then after they had that, that they then turned it into a platform. Hmm. Hmm.
And to, to put it into perspective too, how, how much getting this, this head start, um, that Alexa got really gives them an advantage from, from Google home. Um, there was a 2017, uh, report in, in September that there was about 20 million, uh, echoes that had been sold versus about 7 million Google homes. Then over the holidays, Amazon announced there were tens of millions. So we should assume, you know, minimum 20 million sold over the holiday season. And so, you know, you're looking at, uh, I don't know, 40 plus million compared to maybe 10 or 15. It's a pretty, you know, assuming they both keep growing on, on, uh, the same curve for a while. And, and, you know, Google doesn't do something that is like totally a hundred percent better and causes people to switch or to, you know, forget about uh, Alexa. It, it feels like a winner has been defined here. And particularly um, friends who went to CES this year said freaking everything had a works with Alexa badge on it. And then, and, and well, even like, you know, <laughs> you're, uh, your lady, a that keeps activating in the background, right? Like you've got it all in Sonos in your house, you know? Well, yeah, the uh, cool thing. I, so personally, I'm not willing to make the bet yet on like, uh, it's funny how like Sonos lets you hedge because they are going to be rolling out Google home. Um, you can, you can flip it back and forth between the two ecosystems. So I haven't committed yet. But. Oh, interesting. I didn't realize. Oh yeah. So Sonos has Sonos changed in their strategy. Gonna, they decided to be Switzerland. Huh. Ah, interesting. But but the Google Home on other devices isn't ready yet, right? I don't think so. And and yeah. and AirPlay two isn't out yet either. So Sonos doesn't. Uh, it will start bundling in AirPlay two. I don't. I'm assuming right. not Siri, but we'll we'll be able to work in the Apple ecosystem a little bit. But it's interesting. Like it's such an important head start for Amazon and Alexa, right? Like right now they're the only game in town for third party computing devices to use the assistant. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, I feel like related, you know, what would have happened otherwise uh, is kind of in this camp. I think the interesting thing for me to to think about is like, would any of what we just talked about have been different um, in terms of category and strategy if um, let's say that Sergey had gotten his way and acquired Nest in 2011 uh, when it was still so young? Yeah. And it didn't have a strong... Well, I mean, it already it already had Fidel. It's not like it didn't have a strong culture of its own. Um, but maybe then they wouldn't. Maybe have, Tony and Matt would have become leaders within Google. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: is like what what we glanced over is like the the innovation for the home was voice, like hands down. Mm-hmm. That 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 is the that's the bundle point for the the home. Yeah. And nest wasn't there like nest was doing this yep. very cool smart internet connected uh, appliances thing and they'll you know they're let's say they developed 20 or 30 of those like at what how long would it have taken for nest to realize oh the center locus of control is putting a voice thing in the in the middle of the home and amazon figured that out yeah. and of course google had google assistant on the phones and siri, and siri existed on iphones but like or actually it wasn't google assistant it was uh whatever the okay google thing um the, the the Amazon was really the one to realize that that's that's how we win the home, and so uh, I'm not sure that either acquiring Nest earlier or bundling Nest into Google instead of keeping it as its own thing earlier would have necessarily yielded Google producing the Google Home one or two years earlier. Yeah, although this is I was just thinking about this and looking back on my notes to make sure I got the history right. If if Google had acquired Nest in 2011. It would have been a very similar playbook to when they acquired Android uh, in 2005. Hmm. And Android, 
if we remember our history and facts correctly, when uh, when Andy Rubin was running it as a startup, the vision was not phones, but to be a Linux-based operating system for digital cameras, uh, which sounds really That's similar right. here too, right? They had the wrong, they had the right technology and the right, you know, um, market, but the wrong approach to it. And then it was within Google that it, you know, has got reshaped to become android we know today these general magic guys are like 90 percent of the way there but just need a form factor <laughs> pivot <laughs> this uh, clearly none of them can exist as independent companies <laughs> i don't mean that as a dig like they they've done amazing no, things yeah. but uh, uh but i think it's all part of the same theme though right like when you're talking about building a platform it's just so hard to do it as an independent company hmm well you know i at the very least I would say buying it earlier. There's two ways that this could have gone better for Google. Buy it earlier so you pay less money for it and then you can execute a similar strategy um, yep. or uh, bundle it in with Google and and just have one strategy and understand exactly what you're building and why um, rather than than sort of making a, a separate new business line bet on it. Um, yep. I don't, I, the question I, I have no data on is like what happens to Nest if Google doesn't buy them? And I, maybe yep. i mean it, it would well they were raising that big funding round so they probably would have been able to continue sure but but do they come out with an alexa google home type thing like do they do they yeah. figure out how to be the ecosystem in your home or do they just become the best peripherals to integrate with someone else's ecosystem it's hard to do without aws or google cloud engine on the back end because so much of the voice interaction is driven by mm -hmm. the server side mm -hmm. you know um, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. Um, tech themes. All right. Tech themes. Let's do it. Okay. So my, my first tech theme, which is, uh, just reminded me this whole thing as I was thinking about it, reminded me so much of is the, the, the famous, uh, the famous quote, the Steve jobs quote, which he stole from, uh, oh, I'm blanking Ben, you're going to remember, uh, the guy he stole it from, but you know, if you really care about software, oh, you care uh, about hardware Alan too. Kay? Yeah, the Alan Kay quote, yeah. you know, when you're talking about um, when you're talking about computing platforms, like it's not just software, it's not just hardware, it's not just services, it's all three all together. Um, and I think that's like, to my mind, a big thing that like, who knows if Nest had remained independent, if it could have gone after all that, but um, it was it was too focused on just the hardware, you know, and not enough on the software, not enough on the services, and not enough on the ecosystem altogether. Hmm. That's a yeah, that's a great theme. And it's interesting too, in the last couple of years, how it's become not just hardware and software, but hardware and services, or hardware, software, and services. And I noticed yep. um um you know, and, and services are effectively software just running on a different different piece of hardware than coming down to yours. But earlier when I was saying, um, you know, Apple's business model is is hardware that's differentiated by software. It's differentiated now by software and services. And it's so, um, you know, the, the game has changed and the table stakes are, are, are now all three of those when it was just the two when Alan Kay came up with a quote. Yep. Yep. That's my first one I got. Uh, and, then, and then the other one we've also talked about, but which is, you know. In some ways, I think you could listen to what we're saying here. And if you buy it, uh, it could be discouraging for startups. Um, but I think it's actually just more like a lesson about how to how to stair step as a startup, you know, to borrow another Ben Thompson term, um, which is that you can't start with the platform in mind, uh, but you can start with 
a product and a product that has a network effect. Uh, and then you can use that to then in the next generation bridge into the platform. And, and you've seen this. I mean, again, this is how Google, this is how Facebook started. As you pointed out, this is really how Microsoft started too. Um, you know, Apple as well, all of them. Uh, Netflix couldn't start producing shows without having previously cheaply gotten all the rights to the other shows. And before that have done the DVD distribution business to bootstrap the customer base. Like you, you, you need to do a, a um, network effect product first, and then you can have a, a, a platform that you can build on top or adjacent to it. Yep. And I'm and I'm thinking again about Snap, right? Like we haven't talked talked about Snap in a while, but um, uh, we That's can certainly telling. argue <laughs> argue the uh, the degree of success here. But like, I think the strategy was right. Like Snapchat is a app with a very strong network effect, um, and then you know, can they? They they've built off that, and then can they can they leverage that into becoming a a broader platform, um, like they tried with Spectacles unsuccessfully. Um, but I still think there's something to what they're doing with AR uh, versus what any of the other big platform companies are doing. Um, uh, I, you could argue that they are the most successful you know AR company out there right now, um, and uh, and and will they be able to stair step up? Um, so anyway. Hmm. Hmm. Well, one for me was timing. Um, hmm. I remember my, the first time I went and visited Microsoft before working there in, when did I go? 2010, 2011, um, seeing the smart home. And that was a thing that had existed for like years and years and years. And there was like always this promise of getting to the smart home, but <clears throat> many companies had failed at, at delivering on that over the years. And, uh, it, one thing I've been sort of thinking to myself is like, why now? Like, why is it actually mm -hmm. coming to fruition now? Why are there Sonos with Alexa littered around my house? And, um, you know, I can unlock my front door with my phone. And what is it that finally made it hit a tipping point where it's it's a real market now? And um, Nest, Nest nailed the timing. I mean, strategy, mm -hmm. be damned, like... Um, and and maybe their strategy was just be the best peripherals and not own the ecosystem. But, um, you know, they, they really nailed it with, they were about six to 12 months ahead of when people really wanted this stuff, but they weren't five years ahead. And they're, they're yeah. really starting to hit their stride. I think with, uh, with all the products that, that people want. Um, like, I, I don't think people, like people no longer move into a house and think, okay, I'm going to go get an ADT security system. Like people now for the first time, and I think we're still in the early adopter phase, but it's like, well, of course I'm going to get something that integrates with my, you know, whatever my ecosystem is. I'm not just going to go with mm -hmm. the status quo thing. Um, so I don't know. Do, what, what do you think? Is it like, is it cloud computing? Is it, why, why now? Why today? long silence. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, this is why, uh, uh, I'm trying to think in retrospect, I think we can look back on it and we can say sensors, uh, we can say, um, uh, certainly, uh, the smartphone was a big part about that. You can like control your nest from your smartphone and that right. existing. Cause, cause you um, wouldn't have cared before that you could control it from anywhere else. Cause that anywhere else would have been like a website. Yep. And, 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 you know, I think one of the piece of the positioning and functionality that Nest got really right was this idea of being 
a learning smart home device, not a smart smart home device. Mm. Like it, it mm-hmm. learned from like when you were home and when you were not home and and all that stuff. Um, so I think those are enabling factors. But I, but I also think like when when Matt and Tony started working on this in 2010, nobody could have seen that. I mean, you, maybe you could have seen like the smartphone piece, but like this is really like the to me what um, what makes really great product oriented founders is that ability to take take some seemingly disconnected pieces assemble it together just like tony did in the six-week consulting stint you know with apple for the ipod and and say we can take these pieces put it together this is why the timing is right for now and why consumers will buy this and it definitely worked like i mean they sold a lot of thermostats you know um and uh um and i think it's like because of that vision hmm hmm that's a good point any other tech themes uh that's that's what i got for now but i think that's that's a good uh good seg into grading <laughs> yeah i mean i'm so negative on this like i don't know if anybody could tell i think um <laughs> it's a fine business uh it wasn't the big play they started doing the the big play pretty late and internally and centrally uh and they overpaid by a couple billion dollars for the small play. And it created a lot of turmoil and PR stuff and, you know, internal politicking. Like, I, I think this is a D. Yeah. Well, to me, thinking about grading, the biggest, uh, the biggest um, opportunity cost here associated with this whole saga was being really slow to respond to Alexa. Um, and like, I'm sure, you know, when Google home finally did come out and was done primarily through Google and whatnot, you know, I mean, end of 2016, like, wow, that's crazy late, crazy late. I mean, not as late as the home pod, you know, which is both late and terrible. <laughs> it sounds like, I mean, good sound, but like terrible as a voice assistant. Hey, I, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, we'll see. A- Apple, Apple has a different strategy than Google and Alexa have here. So it, it, um, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I think it's it's distinct enough where I don't think it should be what people are trying to make it out to be, which is like Apple releases their exact competitor with these guys. Right, right, right. Fair enough. But still, I mean, HomePod aside, Apple doesn't have a credible competitor to uh, to Amazon in the smart yeah, in that's the correct. home either. Yeah. You know, nor does Microsoft. Nobody does. Um, so, but arguably, there, Google should have been. Isn't there actually a Cortana piece of hardware? Like, there is actually some kind of thing. I just haven't. <laughs> I said credible competitor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure Microsoft does have some sort of competitor. Um, it's a competing product, but. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, again, it's impossible to know, right? But like, to me, the biggest miss here is not the money they spent on Nest, is not the corporate drama, is not all this stuff. It's like, why did it take until November 2016 for <laughs> for a Google Home to come out, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. So I uh, I think I'm... I'm sort of with you too on this one not because i'm going to go agree with you on a d um not because nest is a terrible business not because uh tony and matt weren't super in fact it's probably a good business 
I mean, it's probably good business and, and yeah. And like the product, um, innovation is great and, you know, um, and I think they do have a really solid team there as we've talked about. Um, but like, it's not where Google needed to be competing. Yeah. I mean, from a financial analysis perspective, like I, I do wonder, it's probably higher than a D if you're like, if you just think about like, okay, in 20, if you, in 2014 dollars, if you pay two point or 3.2 billion for something and presuming that their growth continues, like when will that investment sort of pay back and what will the, you know, if you look at it like on a 15, 20 year horizon, like maybe it actually yep. was a great investment, but I just think strategically for Google, uh, wrong bet. Yeah. A lot of wasted time. Um, all right. Well, there we are. There we are. <laughs> Nest. Nest. <laughs> In 90 minutes or less. Carve-outs? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carve-outs. So uh, I started listening to my new favorite podcast this week. It is called Do By Friday. And uh, it is a weekly challenge show hosted by Merlin Mann, Alex Cox, and Max Temkin. And Alex Cox and Max Temkin are from Cards Against Humanity. And Merlin Mann is the famed author of the productivity blog back in the day, 43 Folders. He's on a bunch of the sort of um, Gruber talk show type type. Uh, podcasts. He's Hot Dogs Ladies on Twitter. Uh, he's got another sh- couple of shows. He's on a bunch of podcasts, but he's pedantic, quick, uh, brilliant, and and like is very very into like productivity hacking and tools and stuff like that. And it, it's like the the podcast is hilarious. You you'll get almost no utility value out of it, but it is like three very smart people who are very quick who are. Uh, um, you know, just talking about like a lot of the things that, uh, apparently make me light up. So, um, I, I highly recommend it if you like, uh, um, like less serious versions of acquired with, uh, less, <laughs> less content, less utility, but uh, like a lot, it's just three people who really enjoy each other's company and it's really fun to listen to. Uh, we're not that serious here on acquired. <laughs> no, we've gotten more serious uh, though. You listen to the early episodes have, and you're yeah. like, did they even like Google it? And <laughs> 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 yeah now we're yeah, yeah at the opposite end of that spectrum yeah. well give us some feedback in the slack tell us what you think um that sounds awesome though also merlin man what a he's great so name. good like, oh yeah it's a it's an amazing name he's got and his vocabulary is as good as his names like you listen to it and you come oh, up with like amazing. just awesome ways to express feelings that you didn't realize you had um well my carve out uh is a article by mark erics uh in the california sunday magazine um which i didn't even know was a thing till i i found this link um but this is an incredible art piece of reporting uh it's very very long um but it's called a kingdom from dust and it's about um it's about the farming industry in central California. Um, and, uh, in particular one farmer farming company, the wonderful company, which makes, um, uh, I think about 65% of the world's almonds and pistachios, Whoa. uh, and, uh, pomegranates that like palm juice. Remember, remember that stuff? Like they make that they have a bunch mm. of other brands. Um, and, uh, halo, those little mini, clementine oranges things oh yeah you buy them um, by the little yeah, cardboard box yep yep they make those um and it's just this 
super, super in-depth piece about like the history. This, this couple, it's a husband and wife who owns it. They live in Beverly Hills. They had nothing to do with farming before they started buying up all this stuff. Uh, The environmental impact of everything, particularly through the drought in California. um, And like, it's insane the amount of water that goes into well first off central california is a desert so all the water is is pi- either piped in from snowmelt or other parts of the state or essentially mined from the aquifer below the earth um and uh uh the amount of water that goes into like one year's worth of you know almonds in the central valley could like be enough water for san francisco for a decade um and uh and and yet like there's so it's just this really good piece of like this husband and wife and company have done a lot of good things for the community there. Um, and a lot of philanthropy. Um, so it's very ambiguous. I feel like the author set out to write a very negative piece and there are very negative aspects of it, but like, it's a very nuanced, um, balanced take. So really, really good long read. If you're looking for something about, uh, um, California and history and water. (laughs) Wow. Cool. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we got. Yeah, I think I think uh, this might be our longest episode, but you know, a storied history at uh, at uh, Apple, Google, Nest, and and basically talking about sort of what is the next frontier, like what is the next multi multi hundred billion dollar business. It uh, deserves the time. Indeed, this is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So. Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com acquired. Or click the link in the show notes. Listeners, if you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. And if you feel so inclined, we would love a comment on Breaker. And uh, thanks so much for for trying new things with us and uh, appreciate listening to the show. We'll see you next time. See you next time.